It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of January 31st, 2016. On tonight's program, we'll hear writer, producer, showrunner Javier Grigio Markswatch say, Everybody wants a franchise of their own to reboot, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, JJ got all the good ones, so that <laughs> no, no, no. And Fred Brunson tells us about his vinyl fetish. Wow, well, who knew, you know, when I did the interview that she'd really become a huge star. This podcast is sponsored by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash Marusik for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Hello once again, ladies, gentlemen, and undecided. Craig, thank you for the announcing, as always, and welcome to another Get Off My Lawn podcast. And right now, I am sitting in my van. And the reason I'm sitting in my van was because it started raining about an hour ago, and I thought to myself, well, you know, the sound of, you know, rain bouncing off an old metal, you know, car roof is a really cool sounding thing. I thought it would sound really cool on the podcast and and get you used to some ambient noise, which you're about to hear in today's interview. But as soon as I sat down and started recording, the rain stopped. Well, it's kind of picking up a little bit now. I don't know how much the microphone is going to pick up of the sound of the rain, but I really like the sound of a rain off of a nice little metal roof. So that's why I decided to record out in the van today, just for no other reason. And again, like I said, you're about to hear some ambient noise. Today's uh, podcast interview features a uh, writer, showrunner, executive producer, extraordinaire, uh, creator of shows, creator of ideas, gentleman by the name of Javier Grigio Markswatch. Don't ask me to spell it. That's up to him. Uh, it took me a while to learn to pronounce it. You'll actually hear me slightly mispronounce it when it comes time for the interview itself. Apologies to uh, to Javier. But uh, he, he, he was a good interview and a good guy. I mean, you know, part of what led me to get the hell out of show business years and years and years ago was that there weren't enough successful, decent people in the industry. You know, there were people who were decent. And there were people who were successful, but it was rare to find a combination of just, you know, good guys doing well. And Javier is a good guy doing well. So you'll want to check out the interview. He's got a lot of stuff to say. If you're not familiar with his name or you've seen his name but didn't know that was how it was pronounced, uh, he is one of the people behind Lost. He's one of the people uh, who works on the show The 100 currently on the air. He's uh, one of the two guys uh, working to reboot Xeno, Warrior Princess. Uh, And one of my favorite things he did was a very, very short-lived series called The Middleman. And we will talk about all of those things in the podcast and and more. And we will do all of it from a patio of a coffee shop on Sunset Boulevard, one of the busiest streets in Los Angeles. So, as I said, you'll hear some traffic, but I think it provides some really nice ambiance uh, to what's going on in the interview. It, it you know the, the the sirens aren't too bad, though. Apparently, when we were doing the interview, there were several emergencies taking place at that exact moment. So, you will hear some of that. But it's a cool interview. I hope you stay tuned for it. Uh, In terms of anything else that's going on in the world these days, 
I got nothing. I mean, there's lots of things I can say, lots of things I want to say, you know, in terms of politics, in terms of society, in terms of whatever. But you know what? Well, you check on my Twitter feed. I'll post about it there. Like I said, I always try to keep the podcast upbeat and and fun and, you know, full of whatever. <laughs> I'm always full of whatever. But uh, that I'm not going to deal with any of that here. So for now, just go ahead and check out this interview with Javier. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll chat with you again after the uh, after the interview. We'll see. We'll see what's what. So, uh, for those who do not know, well, first of all, welcome to the spacious patio of Albert Coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where we're hosting it. If you hear any ambient noise of, well, the sirens that just drove by, we're here on Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Uh, I am here. I, I promised myself I was going to pronounce your name right the first oh. time, so I went to two different sites, heard two different people say okay. it. So I'm thinking Javier, obviously. Yeah. And then we got, is it Grillo or Grillo? Grillo. Grillo. Yes. And then Mark's watch. Yeah. Woohoo. Just like it's written. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a long Polish last name that no one ever gets <laughs> what's right. Your, so what's your last it's name? Marusik, but it's Marusik. Marusik, you know, okay, yes. Every, every vowel you can imagine rearranged in 20 different ways. <laughs> I thought your last name was your genial host. That's <laughs> it. That's how I go by It's easier than Marusik. <laughs> um, so, so for those who do not know you, give us your 30-second resume here. What are, what are, where do uh, uh, they uh, recognize I'm your name? Probably best known for uh, looking a lot like John C. Riley. That's right. I get that a lot. <laughs> no, um, I uh, no, I was one of the writers of Lost. Uh, one, probably one of the Emmy-winning writers yes, of Lost. Uh, I was part of the team that won the Emmy in 96, 94, 95? I don't, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> uh, we won the Emmy for the first season, um, and I was one of the writer-producers on that season, and I worked with... Um, Damon Lindelof and J.J. Abrams on uh, creating the mythology and all of the backstory for the show. So you helped uh, kind of compile the Bible type of thing? or was Well, it was, it, uh... it was interesting. The show, you know, I wrote a very long essay about this that um, I'll plug later. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it, it was one of those things where um, the show um, the show was sold, the show was not written when it was greenlit. J.J. and Damon sold it off of an outline very late in the development process, and they hired this sort of think tank of writers to come in and uh, and help to develop the mythology and the characters and all of the stuff that was going on in the show while they wrote the pilot. Mm. So it was a really interesting sort of case of parallel development. And then when the show became a series, we all became writer-producers on, on the show. So um, And it was me, it was Paul Dini, who was the uh, head writer for the animated Batman. Uh, Jennifer Johnson, who is uh, a, a television writer, uh, she she show ran uh, Cold Case, and she had a show called The Chase. Um, so she's uh, and Christian Taylor, who was the showrunner of uh, Eye Candy and Teen Wolf, um, and myself, and that was the uh, that was the group, the core group. And uh, for for about four months, four or five months, uh, the four of us just sat in a room, back and forthing ideas with Jason, with uh, Damon, and with JJ, and figuring out what Lost would be. So that's probably the thing I'm best known for. I also created a television show called The Middleman. That that's was on... what I know you from. Ah, well, God bless you, sir. That's that's you know that is the that is the bona fide song of my soul. The first time I I, I met you and shook hands with you very very briefly at Comic Con, the year that you guys uh-huh. presented Middleman, you did the, the panel. Oh yeah, the series or or the year after we um, the year, or this year we canceled. That was the series. That was, okay. it was the because yeah, it was you and I think the lead actor Matt. Was oh, that's there. right because uh, Les McLean, who was. Um, yeah, that was an interesting year because that was the year of the exploding meat truck. Did, were you aware of that? Yeah. There was a, a, a truck with uh, a truck from Ralph's that was uh, loaded with steaks. Apparently, exploded 
in the one ten mile stretch of the freeway that had no, the, the five freeway that had no exits, and everything was closed. The train was backed yep. up for hours. All of the showbiz <laughs> LA guests were held up for four hours, and, and I have the most amazing story because, you know, uh, we, uh, at Disney owns ABC Family, and yeah. they they graciously gave us a limousine. So my wife and I got picked up in a limo, which was awesome, and, and we were being driven down to San Diego, and then this thing happened, and. You know, and, and, and I didn't think I was going to make the panel. You know, we were like, you know, by the time that bottleneck gave way, we were 20 minutes away from the convention center, and it was something like 35 miles away. Yeah. So I remember telling the, um, telling the limo driver, I said, um, I will give you a $100 tip if you get me to my panel on time. I, I have my entire life, I have wanted to go to Comic-Con with a show I created. And the guy looks at me and sort of nods, and then, you know, I made, I made it to the panel, and he literally, I mean, like, he, it was like Herbie's wild ride. I mean, it was, it was this Lincoln town car and it was like, bah, you know. So we get there and my wife's hair standing up on end. I think some of it turned white. And, um, and I give him the, 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 the $100 and I say, you are a great driver. And he goes, and he looks at me and he goes, I am not a great driver. All of my talent comes from Allah. And I'm like, whoever. Salam, you know. I'm... And then I ran to the panel and it was awesome. So yeah, it was really good. And yeah, that series to me just was, it had that nice quirky sensibility of it where it poked fun at, the, at its own genre, basically, Absolutely. and I, I really, really like that style of it, mm -hmm. and it sounds like I'm just brown nosing for the sake of you sitting here, no, but I really I was I really, I really was a fan it, yeah. of that show, and I thought it was going to go a lot longer than the 13 no. episodes that it ultimately did. But. For me, it falls under the category of, uh, of uh, don't be sad because it's over, be happy that it happened. Exactly. Because exactly. it was such a unique little thing that we got to do, and you know, this was... A good, you know, seven years before Community or any number of other things that, that have that sensibility. And I'm not saying we were blazing trails or anything, because that's kind of pompous. But, you know, we, 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 had, we were sort of like right on the bleeding edge of that kind of sensibility really hitting the mainstream. So it's nice to be behind your time or ahead of your time. Or <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, you, you were, like you said, you, you, know, you at least got to be a part of that, yes. which was awesome. Ahead of my time, but behind the success curve, I think, is the... Uh, <laughs> Do you think that another network could have done it a little differently or more successfully? No, or is no. A... You know, I get asked that a lot. And, and look, the truth of the matter is, and this is why I'm happy that it happened instead of sad that it's over. It's that it would have, it could have only happened at ABC Family at that point in time when they were still figuring out who they were going to be and what they were going to do, and 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 they were susceptible to me selling them on because they really what what ABC Family wanted to be at that point was the WB, and I don't mean the CW. I mean the WB. They wanted right. to have Buffy, Felicity. You know, they had the secret life of the American teenager. They were really building toward, they had Kyle XY. They were kind of trying to build toward a brand that would get to that. And Greek was a big show for them. And I sort of convinced them that Middleman could be their Buffy. I mean, I was wrong. <laughs> so wrong. Like, six and a half seasons worth yeah, of wrong. Well, <laughs> give or take. Who's counting? But, uh, yeah, but who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> so... But you worked on a couple of other shows that were sort of, like, you worked on Charmed was another one that you Char had you know, it's some, funny, some time uh, on. Charmed is probably the most successful, if you actually think about it, it was on longer than Lost. Yeah. Had more episodes than Lost. Um, and it's interesting because to this day, like, there's a certain age of, of women, you know, probably from 22 to about 35 years old, who either grew up watching the show on the, CW, on, on the WB or... Um, grew up watching it in reruns on TNT because TNT for a while there was running at four, five, yeah. six, nine, like literally Law and Order and Charmed were beating each other with clubs <laughs> to see who could be on TNT more. And uh, and I, you know, and I got to tell you, at the time that I was working on Charmed, my emotions about that show were pretty mixed because 
certain things I thought were very good. We were trying to do female empowerment, you know, and, and we were actually more popular in the ratings than Buffy. So, so in a way, we were kind of carrying a, a less idiosyncratic version of that message, but we are carrying it to a bigger group of people. Yeah. And, uh, and then, but now, you know, so many people, like, write to me, on, you know, email me or, or tweet me and, and, and about how much they love the show, and I think that the, the actual message got through. So that was really good. I think I think so, and it still runs. You know, you still see it various God places. God bless various Charm. Times. Yeah, I yeah, know. <laughs> you still get the residuals on that as a the writer. Bit, or yeah, no, absolutely, and and it's great. You know, look, uh, you can't. You know, um, when you're in in it, you can dislike a lot of things about whatever you're working on, but then you look back on it with a little bit of hindsight, and you see also. And look, I think with Charmed, the proof is that. I get you know a lot of people still telling me that they really enjoy that show and that it, it, it that they like the message that the three sisters were united against evil and all of that and that it did have a female empowerment component and so on you know and I guess that there were concessions that had to be made for commerce at the time that you know but honestly I feel like at the end of the day um, that show really did a lot of good and it really inspired a bunch of people and that's yeah. that's nice you know yeah. I can't I can't complain about that that's you know? true so working on a show with all that female empowerment as you've said uh, is that how you got approached to do Xena, or did you make the approach to you know, do the reboot um, of Xena? Or, so or are you allowed to talk about Xena? No, I can talk about Xena. No, no. <laughs> Xena, Xena is, uh, I mean, the, the cat's out of the bag on that one. It's interesting because we were trying to not let the cat out of the bag, and <laughs> the cat stayed in the bag for about 48 hours. Okay. I sold it on a Friday, was the day that I went in with Rob Tappert and his company to talk to the network about my take on it which Rob had liked and he'd helped me develop. And, uh, and and they were like, well, you know what? There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of press on this. Let's try to keep it on the DL so that we don't have to answer a lot of questions. And then within 48 hours, the word was out. So, <laughs> Welcome to Hollywood, yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, I think, like, literally, you know, Xena is a classic show. It's a watershed show. People, you know, it, it means a lot to a lot of people. It is, it is a... an incredibly influential show mm-hmm. among the gay community, for example, because... That relationship, the, the because Zine of the subtext, Gabriel, yeah, yeah. Um, what they called the subtext, um, <laughs> which I call that obvious thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, um, so uh, so you know, um, it, 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 there's just a lot of interest, and the fans of Xena love it, and they're tracking it. So it got out, sure. and I can definitely talk about it. So I was I was in college at the time, and mm-hmm. you know. I, of course, only watched it for the Greek mythology, not because only, yeah, there not, were a lot of attractive, of attractive women, women in it. Kicking ass in it just, yeah. just the Greek mythology yeah. was my, where my interest lies. Well, you know, that's that's one where, you know, look, I, I, I am literally turning in my first outline of the pilot today, so it's in a very nascent stage. But, you know, it's, it's a show where I do wonder, like, a lot of the appeal of the show was a sex appeal, you know, and we're going to have to have some of that. But I would also, you know, like to have conversations with the people who are making the show about... Maybe the length of that leather miniskirt, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, if they, if they can redo the Wonder Woman outfit for all of the new movies, they yeah. can probably redo the. the well, Zena you know, the thing is, Zena, Zena, like Wonder Woman is is she she is a bona fide you know sort of superhero. So you know, like if she gets dragged behind a horse, like you know, like she's not going to get road rash, right? You know, but Zena's a human being. So like you know, when you look at like Game of Thrones. And my favorite character in Game of Thrones is Brienne of Tarth, who is mm. just, an, it's just a wonderful character. But she's wearing full-on armor. I mean, they're not fucking around with Brienne right. of Tarth. I mean, she's, you know, <laughs> she's like every bit as armored as the men. So I think that, you know, both for the sake of feminism, realism, there's going to be a real sort of interesting dynamic there about how to keep that wonderful element of sex appeal that both men and women like about that show. 
and also maybe have the character a little more protected against the elements, you know? Yeah. So. Are you working with anybody who kind of worked on the original series creatively? Or? Well, yeah. Um, look, uh, the, 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 in order to get over the... Like, in answer to your first question, the way that I got the gig was I knew it was out in the air. I knew that NBC was looking to reboot. I knew they had looked at other writers. I think that at one point they may have even commissioned a script. Um, and they had moved forward with it. And I, I told my agents to pursue it aggressively. I think that, you know, look, th there's a lot of rebooting of franchises and stuff going on. And, and, you know, everybody wants a franchise of their own to reboot, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, JJ got all the good ones. So that <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> You're not bitter. You know, I'm not... You know, I don't know. He, he's uh, he's uh, he, he's also got a full head of hair and he stayed skinny. And I, I have no reason to be envious of J.J. Abrams. Uh, time no, uh, time will change all of that. I don't think so. He's yeah. a couple he's a couple years older than I am. I think I think skinny maybe. The hair okay. I think is here to stay. <laughs> the good news is the best hair in Hollywood will always be George Lucas, and you know, the, 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 you just and he did it by staying out of Hollywood as much as possible. <laughs> I think that might have something to do with it. No, but um, no. I mean, look. Everybody has franchises that you love, and when you think about and I've and I've looked at a couple things that that, that have been reboots and all that. I rebooted um, Lost in Space for CBS uh, about six years ago, mm. and they did not move forward with it because really they were. I mean, this was three or four years before Extant, for example. So I mean, again, they just weren't looking at that kind of programming. But like, um, I like the idea of of you know Zena. Here's the thing, Zena. I asked my agents to pursue it aggressively, and then I pursued it aggressively with Rob Tappert, who created the original, and I wouldn't have gotten under the transom or over the transom or whatever if he hadn't liked what I wanted to do, because they had not hit on something that, you know, I think he was looking for some, for, for a take that would convince him that it was worthwhile to rebooting Xena, you know, both, there's a lot of fans who want to see the original come back, and there's a lot of fans who just want some Xena, but I mean, you really have to justify your existence, you know? Right. Um, so I feel like I came in with something that, that he sparked to and that he felt would make it, uh, you know, worthwhile to get back in the trenches with the character. But I wanted to do it because, you know, look, there's, there's two reasons why. One of them is, in 95 when that show came out, if you were a genre fan, you had to go to first-run syndication because that's where all the good genre was. Yeah. You know, like the networks were putting up shows like Sequest, which I worked on. But they were kind of bloated and they always stayed very elementary in their storytelling because they didn't want to take the leaps that... Sophisticated genre fans accept things like time travel and sure. parallel universes and all that stuff, and all the all the things that um, that that made Xena so quirky and interesting and wonderful. You couldn't do on the networks because they wanted the broad audience, you know. So, oh, even a period piece, yeah, would have been oh, a yeah, struggle yeah. back in those days. Yeah. So, so, um, so I was a huge first run syndicate. I watched all the Star Treks on first run, Hercules, Xena, Jack of all trades. Cleopatra 2525, you know, invade, uh, what was the, the uh, Earth Final Conflict? Yeah, like, Babylon 5 was Babylon one of the 5 was, uh, yeah, exactly. So that's where, the, that's where the fans were. And the idea of bringing back a show that existed in that space, that had such a progressive um, agenda, a Xena, was just irresistible to me. And I really, really wanted to. And look, Middleman had a female protagonist. I had just spent a year working on The 100, which is a show about primarily women who rule this atavistic warrior culture mm -hmm. um, and when you work on a show like you know it, it goes back to what I was saying about the hundred it goes back to about the middleman you work on these shows and maybe they're not all as successful as you wish they were uh, some of them are very successful but the feedback you get from people who are 
touched in a profound way by these shows is deeply moving. And, and I think that with something like Xena, there is an entire generation of, of feminists, there's an entire generation of, of, of gay women who looked at that show, and that was the one portrayal that was out there. And I think that it's an honor to be chosen to, you know, be able to, to, to have had a take and to be chosen to go in and do that, you know? So, so that was a big part of it. And the, other, and the other part of it was, in some way, to kind of uh, bring back that first-run syndication feeling that I used to have when I, you know, when I was 25, <laughs> which I loved. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, you know, some of the stuff and the feedback and things. Mm -hmm. Is there, in the world of writing now, like a social media cachet where, you know, your Twitter followers will help you or hinder you when it comes to getting work or things like that, or is it... I don't know. I think I'm probably my own worst enemy. You know, the, the, big, <laughs> the, the biggest issue you have when you have a... And I don't have a huge social media following. I mean, I think there's... You know, when you consider, for example, Damon, when he was on Twitter, he probably had a million followers or half a million or something like that. I mean, you're talking about... The showrunners who are doing shows that are huge breakout mainstream hits are, you know, they ha they have followers in the six to seven figures. I mean, they're I have maybe ten thousand followers, and um, by and large, they're very nice. <laughs> you know? I get a lot thing. of haters. They That's seem to be thing. there because they like the stuff I've done, and it's, you know, I, I think of it as curated obscurity. <laughs> That's my brand. That's a good way of doing it. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good way of doing so, it. So you know, um, and and look, I write these essays uh, about. Uh, television. I write. I, I do the podcast with Jose Molina, who's. What's the name of the podcast? We'll, it's we'll called the that. Children of Tendu Podcast. There are thirteen episodes and four specials, and they are basically a an A to Z, from the beginning to the bitter top, uh, <laughs> walking you through what it takes to be a television writer producer. Nice. And uh, we're actually uh, we're, our, our special for for this period is called uh, the Eleven Laws of Showrunning, and that's an essay that I just published today, actually. Um, so, you know, I write these things, and, and you never know. I think that's probably the thing that's going to be most career-limiting is that somebody's going to read something I wrote and be like, ooh, don't hire that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so maybe it's that. I don't know. I don't know. Well, uh, when it comes to show running, how hands-on are you with your writing staff? Is it something where you will always have final say or that you trust certain people more than others? Well, or? when you, you know, look, I think that the first law of show running... No, we, we don't have to go through all of that. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> well, the first law is it's all about you, so, so don't make it all about you. Right. But, uh, but but it is look when you're you, you know the showrunner is the CEO of a of a corporation with a budget you know that's usually 40 million and above um, and about 150 to 200 employees um, and it all starts in the writers room and your job primarily is to know the show you're doing and to impart that vision on everybody and it starts with the writers because so so literally whether as a showrunner or as a you know staff person on a show. 80% of my time is spent in the writer's room. Um, and that time is spent breaking story, creating story. You know, and, and, and that's... and It's very easy for showrunners to be beguiled by the blandishments of other departments. Like, you know, like, oh, I want to go to set where the pretty people are. And I want to go to casting where the pretty people are. I want to go to editing. Or I want to, you know... But really your job starts and ends, starts and ends in the writer's room. Because that's where you forge the vision. Um... And look, in terms of your writing staff, you hire a competent writing staff, you teach them how to write like you, and hopefully you don't have to do a tremendous amount of, of working and reworking of their material, but sometimes you do. So, you know, it's, it's not whether you're hands-on with any one writer or whatever, it's that you've hired, you know, 7 to 13 people of varying levels of skill, and you expect them to deliver at varying levels of skill, and the last word 
on, on, on any show, the showrunner is the person who's going to decide what gets on and what doesn't. Any, there's nothing that goes in front of the lens that the showrunner hasn't approved personally. It's that level of oversight, so yeah. that's the job, you know? And you took over Helix this last season? Is I did right? not, no. Um, Helix, I was a co-executive producer oh, on okay. that show, both seasons. Uh, the showrunner was a gentleman named Steve Maeda. The show was created by uh, Cameron Persande. And Ron Moore was our sort of 800-pound gorilla, but he was really splitting his time with Outlander, which he was a hands-on showrunner on. So really it was Steve Maeda's um, vision that guided that show. And we were there, you know, as with any time that you're a co-EP or whatever, you know, most of the time, like on The 100, on Helix, uh, on a few other shows, you know, my job has been to be that strong number two and really to work with the showrunner to enable their vision. So that's, uh, that was my job on that, you know. I always think that for people not in the industry, when they hear the executive producer terms, it's such a vague term yes. for a lot of people. Yes. You know, what, from my experience, I worked very, very briefly in the industry back mm. in the 90s, and then I bailed and joined the Peace Corps and got okay. away from home. Oh, you but, actually uh, did world wor wor work that was worthwhile. That was, <laughs> yeah, those were the days. Yeah. But uh, as I was looking at you know, sort of who does what, the, the easiest explanations I could come up with was in my opinion, there were two types of EPs. There was the money guy, mm. and there was the creative guy. And right. There was very rarely ever a merger of the two. If you could find someone that could balance them both. Well, that's that's truer in movies in terms of a lot of people who are executive producers are, in fact, the financiers and stuff like that. You know, in TV, like, for example, right now I'm working on a project called uh, The Black Stiletto, which, uh, I don't know, I should find out probably this week whether it's going to get made or not. Um, but the you know my the, the team with whom I'm working includes Mila Kunis, who was the person whose production company um, found the material, you know, optioned the material, um, you know, and she she's very hands on in it. But when it comes down to actually producing a series, you know, she actually has a production company. She's got a number of series in the works that she's executive cool. producing. I didn't know that about so, her. So oh yeah, no, she's very very smart, uh, awesome producer. I mean, I've had a delightful time working with her and her organization. Um, but, you know, the, the person who's actually doing the day-to-day, -day, you know, sort of organizational leadership task in that show is going to be me, you know? So, 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 so by and large in TV, you're, you're showrun, you're, you've got your showrunner as an executive producer, but you also have people who, like, it's their production company, they put the package together, they, and, and, they, and look, I expect to have oversight from Mila and her people, I expect to be talking to her and having her, you know, be actively involved in the making of the show. But I also expect to be the, the CEO of that corporation, you know, so, you know, and honestly, I keep using these corporate metaphors, but in a way, like, running a show is like, you've got your showrunner who's your, your CEO, and then you've got a board of directors, and that includes the network, the studio, and then uh, other executive producers who might have been involved with putting the talent together, uh, developing the show, any number of things. Yeah, it's, it's fair to use the corporate analogy. I mean, oh, you yeah. see any show that even features behind-the-scenes stuff always tends to focus more on the creative-slash-fun aspects of the series. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, prefer, I prefer to describe it in business terms because one of the things that I think is, is a real problem is that, look, the way they make television in the United States, and it's not the same everywhere, but, you know, here the writer really has the position of ultimate oversight over an entire organization that, like I said, it's funded, uh, you know, like in the tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. You really are a CEO and you're really doing work that is managerial and, and that it's like startup and entrepreneurial, you know? So, so that's the, um, you know, that's the gig. So I would rather see more professionalism than idiosyncrasy. <laughs> and if I were, and if I were a, uh, a, uh, 
a network executive or, a, or or somebody who's overseeing you know the, the money side of it, I would probably prefer that as well. Yeah. And I think that that's the side that gets the most amount of short shrift, and the side that less people understand is that side where it is a business, you know. And I think my show is by no means educational, but for those that are tuning in just to get a general sense of what it is writing for television, it's good for them to realize there's more to it than you know, again, quote-unquote, the creative aspects oh, of it, that yeah. there are other, you know, a lot of them come in, I, you know, and I was that way myself when I graduated college with my broadcasting degree, I think mm -hmm. I knew everything about everything, and then you get into the practical day-to-day -day realities of it and find out what it yeah. isn't. <laughs> well, you know what, uh, also, um, having a healthy, non-solipsistic amount of introspection about what you don't know um, is, is not the worst thing that somebody can have who works in television, I, yeah. mean, I think that it's, you know... Especially if you're a writer, because you know you are, whether you want to or not, as a writer in television, you are on a path to become a producer, and a creator, and a manager. At and least a if you want control over yeah. your words, basically. Yeah, and a mentor and an educator. You know, and uh, you need to be prepared to do those jobs. And a lot of people, through either ascension that's too rapid, or through a lack of desire, don't do those things. You know. Is this gonna? Is any of this gonna be usable? We'll find out. Are you sure? <laughs> no. Why do you do? You said you write articles. You do podcasts in addition to the actual show running and executive producing yep. and writing stuff. Is that something you feel like you said to be sort of a mentor to other writers? You feel sort of obliged yeah, to do that? Yeah, um, I think that's really important. I feel like um, I came up during an interesting hinge time in television. Um, it was after the sort of great successes in, from the 80s or Hill Street Blues. You know, L.A. Law was kind of in its last legs. Sure. E.R. was about to come on the air. You know, so it was this hinge period between that great sort of, you know, period in the 80s when you have, you know, when you had shows like that and then the, what they call the golden age. That's when I was coming up. Genre was not very big. Uh, it was in first-run syndication. Yeah, syndication. The people it. who wrote on, say, Star Trek The Next Generation, you know, like during the, the late 90s, my agents would say, we, we're not going to try to get you on Star Trek. And I'd say, why? And they go, because you're going to get ghettoized. You're going to be seen as a genre guy, and that's not who gets the big deals. And I said, who gets the big deals? And they were like, people who write 10 o'clock shows, cop shows on ABC, CBS, and NBC. That's who gets the big deals. And I was like, so, you know, I spent a good five to six years chasing after that grail, and eventually genre... Showed up, <laughs> yeah. Well, genre always called to me, and if you look at my resume, it's mostly those types of shows. And my agents were not happy about that. Yeah. The happiest they've ever been was when I when I got a, a Law and Order SVU freelance, <laughs> and then when Graham Yost hired me on Boomtown, they were like, "Oh, thank God, finally!" You know, like. Um, then much to their frustration, you know. That's <laughs> that not did, what you wanted. That did not. You know, they were okay when Lost happened, but sure. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> they were fine with that. But that, you know, again, not to, not to pat you on the back, but Lost was one of those shows that really paved the way for that whole genre on network. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm mean, really very proud of what that show did and all that. And I have no, you know, I mean, it's... Um, but, but here's the thing. Um, so uh, there was, there was a, a question I was answering. First run syndication. Genre, oh, so... so and, and look, TV has never been a very um, mentor-driven medium. This is true. Um, there is there is a lot of what I call madness, rage, and abuse, um, and I feel like anything I can do to sort of demystify it, anything that I can do to make people more aware of what it actually looks like behind the scenes and what is good behavior, uh, and 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 anything that I can do to make, look. Here's the biggest thing. You know, my biggest sort of crusade is to try to explain to people that darkness, mental illness, depression, 
are not the same as creativity, and that you really don't have to indulge one to uh, to have the other. And I told you I first saw you at the Comic Con panel. You were the least like any of the other writers on any of the panels because you were so upbeat. Oh, <laughs> and so you know. I don't even know what adjective to use that's going to sound silly, that won't sound silly, but you were very positive about the work you were doing as opposed to the people that were like, oh, I poured my heart and soul into this, and this yeah. is what I weep for, and this is what I bleed. Now we're pretty lucky people <laughs> to do this job, and look, you can always be a novelist, you can always be a poet, you know, if you like have chosen to come to L.A. and go through the hell that it is to get your career going and do all that, <laughs> you should know what you're getting into, and, and it's, you're, you're, the price to pay to play on the world stage is that you are called upon to manage a great deal of resources. You might as well do it professionally, because a show's going to get on the air no matter what. Like once you sell a pilot and a series, you're going to that show's going to be on the air, right. and if and it's either going to chew you up and spit you out as a sort of deranged wreck of a person who's left behind a vast, you know, trail of carcasses of other writers that that that, <laughs> that he or she has destroyed. Or you can run a, a good shop with happy people who are who, whose creativity is being enabled by what you're doing. And you know, I, and I've worked on some shows that were really horrible. And I just don't want. And look, I think you have some responsibility to. And I use this language all the time, and it sounds really melodramatic, but you have some responsibility to kind of stop the cycle of abuse, you know. So I take that really seriously, and that's why I do the podcasts and the articles and all that stuff. I mean, my my family also. Uh, we have a scholarship at USC. Um, that is a uh, scholarship for writers who are interested in portraying the Latino experience. Uh, so basically for me, when I was, you know, 21. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it, you just have to try to attack it from every angle and try to constantly present um, to the world um, the idea that, that um, you know, that, that creativity can be managed, it can be channeled, it can be directed, it can be wonderful, it can also be shared. You know, and that it's not something that you have to put a bunch of moats and weapons around. It's something yeah. that you can give freely, and it actually comes back to you in spades, you know? I was laughing. One of the guys I got to interview is uh, the guy that wrote the original Friday the 13th. Okay. <laughs> and uh, chatting with him, anytime he would bring up anything, and he'd written, I guess, for soap operas as well and done all these uh -huh. other things, but he would say, oh, yeah, we should get together and write that. It's like any suggestion you would have off the wood. And I, I finally said, you know, you really like collaboration, don't you? It's like, it's boring just to sit in a room alone. And <laughs> but, you know, but you know what happens is also when you get somebody, like, you know, one of the things that's happening in TV in the last, you know, 10 years is they're on the lookout for fresh voices. So they, they will buy pilots from people who are really junior, who've never, you know, produced before. Yes, I've seen. They, they'll buy pilots from, like, screenwriters who, you know, screenwriters are great because they're not bound by some of the same restrictions that you learn to abide by in TV, so they do amazing world building and things like that, but most of these guys have been sitting in their home office for 10 years, 15 years, writing screenplays that may or may not get produced, you know? Um, you've got your playwrights, you know, you've got your whatever, and like, you know, the biggest difference between people like that and some guy like me who's been in TV for 20 years is that for those 20 years, 80% of my time has been spent in a room working collaboratively with other people. Yeah. And, you know, some people find collaboration boring, but other few people find it excruciatingly painful <laughs> because other people are judging your pitches right. and there's just a lot of back and forth and, and it's hard to get consensus and all that. And especially if you're the boss and you have to tell people, no, we're not doing your idea, like, you know. And, and that's the biggest adjustment, I think. that, and, and it's one of the biggest gateways to people not managing shows well is that they don't like that contentious environment, you know. Or they don't know how to make it not contentious. Yeah. You know. Two things I wanted to hit up, and then I'll let you go, go yeah. do your merry way. Uh, 
one of them is, and only because you mentioned it earlier, you went and saw Star Wars. I did, indeed, yes. Because you are connected to J.J. Abrams, I'm curious to your to your review of, I'm not, of I'm how not he connect. did. I mean, I guess I you know I worked with him yeah. on, on Lost, and uh, no, look, I think that you know uh, the Force Awakens is um, has all of the great iconography that you know, like first of all. When you look at the expectations on that movie, which is like not a just big. new Star Wars, <laughs> but like also make everybody feel good about Star Wars yeah. again, and not you know, I think he totally accomplished that. I mean, I think that the you know one of the things it's funny. I had this this uh, this conversation with JJ during the making of the Lost Pilot when he said something along the lines of you know you just need a lot of a lot of big close-ups of people crying. <laughs> And, uh, but, you know, the thing is, you know, he's created this, this group of characters who are diverse, who are iconic in that good Star Wars way that those original characters were iconic. So I think he's, I think he did a great job of updating, you know, that universe and, and everything that could be sort of shined up and made a little bit new is newer and cool. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it's, 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 I think it's a success, it's, it's successfully done. Hold on. (laughs) No, look, I, look, I think that, and here's the other thing is that, something like that, you could kvetch about it till the cows come home, you know, but if somebody told you, you have six months to write a Star Wars movie, like, you're hired, now you have six months to, and you only have six months because you're going into production in six months to make this date for a release, right. to write and prep a Star Wars movie... And it has to make everybody feel good about Star Wars. It has to make everybody forget the prequels. <laughs> you know? What prequels? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's like the, the amount of pressure and the, and the amount of expectation on that. And I think that they acquitted themselves beautifully. So there you go. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's, it's like let, 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 let they who could do better cast the first stone on this. This is one. true. This <laughs> is true. And look, I think with like the Star Trek, you know, like like with Star Trek, I had a couple more beefs with it also because, you know, uh, but you know, with this, it's like, thank you, you brought it back. People love it again. Yeah. We're all cool. BB-8 is awesome. Finn is awesome. Absolutely. Ray is awesome. You know, Poe Dameron is Guatemalan, <laughs> which I'm <laughs> delighted about. Yeah. I literally spent the first half hour of that movie poking my wife in the shoulder, going, "He's Hispanic, just like me." You know. <laughs> Well, that see, that's the other thing that I wanted to mention, only because it's been so prevalent in the news is the Oscars yeah. and the big, you know, fracas of that. You know, you're mm-hmm. obviously a fairly successful Latino in Hollywood. You yeah. know, you are, you know, a, a big name, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. What is your reaction to it? Look, I think Danny DeVito uh, recently was asked about it, and in his usual blunt Danny DeVito, you know, it's great when you're Danny DeVito because you can say whatever you want. Uh, yeah. Um, he said, yeah, we live in a racist country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, uh, and look, to which everybody goes, well, I'm not racist, you know. But, I mean, look, we, we live in a country that has a tremendous amount of institutionalized racism. There is no one thing that's going to end it. Um, we all have to, those of us who are aware of it and not in denial about it, have to do whatever we can to make it less that way. The Academy is doing a couple things. They're, they're putting those caps on who can be in the Academy, who's a voting member, who's emeritus. Um, you know, they're, 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 they've responded to this in a fairly agile way. Um, but that's not going to change everything. Right. Um, because we li- the air we breathe is a casual prejudice that just exists from living in a country where, you know, we're, we're less than, 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 than 200 years away from when we had slavery. 
we are, you know, less than, than, than 60 years away from when we had straight up segregation. You know, we're less than 50 years away from when there had to be an active civil rights movement to, 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 to address these things. Um, everybody wants to pretend that, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King and, 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 and the success of the civil rights movement somehow exculpated everybody, but it didn't. Yeah. It's, 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 we, we live in that air and there's no use denying it, but there's also, you know, for somebody like me, I am Latino, I live, in, I, I live and work in this industry, I also live and work in the world, I understand how it is. What do you do? You know, like, what do I do? Well, we give a scholarship to people who are interested in portraying the Latino experience, you know. You, you, you create a TV show and you not only put a Latina at its lead, but you also make sure that she represents who I was when I was a kid. You know, she's not, you know, she's, she, she's not, she's, she was the kind of Latina that I was when I was a child. You know, she was nerdy, she was geeky, she wasn't somebody who broke into Spanish whenever she got right. upset or <laughs> called men papi and things like that. You know, she was a portrayal of a certain kind of person that was had specificity and real character. And... Here's the, the truth of the matter is I, I can probably do more and hope that I will, um, but I also can't fix all of it. So I try to be aware. I try to be conscious of it. I try to be present in the knowledge that that is the reality that we live in. And you do your best to cast multiculturally. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you what, one of the, the most satisfying things that I've been involved with recently was um, and this is through no achievement of my own. This is a show I was hired on, but on the hundred, uh, about seventy-five percent of that writing staff is female, yeah. and that's to Jason Rothenberg's credit that he put together that group of talent. And that's that that I felt was a really great environment to be in. Um, and you always learn more. There's always more to learn and more to do. And if you're aware of it, then every step you take, if you're conscious of it, you try to mitigate some of the damage. And that's it. I mean, look, I wish I could tell you that there's some great panacea that you should <laughs> pass legislation or whatever, you know, but no. uh, a lack of diversity and a resistance to inclusion is baked into our social DNA right now. And it's going to take generations to mutate that out of our DNA. And we just have to be aware of it and, you know, try to mutate faster, you know. On The 100, you know, we, we're a show that we have some very frank portrayals of, of uh, relationships between women. Um, you know, of, 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 of gay, there's a lot of, there's a, a fair number of gay characters in the show. We present it in a very matter-of-fact way because the show's set in the future and we figured, well, this is a show about people stuck in an atavistic warrior culture, but what if this wasn't an issue? Yeah. And in a way that's also inspired a lot of people and made a lot of people kind of go like, oh, this is great, this is not portrayed as an issue, thank you. Yeah, it's something different. And, and to me that's important and I think it's just everything, every if you're aware of the baked institutionalized racism in our society, then you have a responsibility to try to address it as much as you can and within, within your power and further on and to, and to not just um, sleep with it and be okay with it, you know? Cool. Well, I thank you for taking the time. No, I appreciate it. I know you got tons of things to do. Yeah, that's no, obvious. And thank but, you for uh, coming to my neck of the woods and oh. braving the traffic. I appreciate it. Like I said, I'll, I'll hit the vinyl shop so it all justifies <laughs> it. I'm sure okay, Galco's cool. is around here somewhere, too, I think. What is the, the soda pop shop, Galco's. Have you ever oh, been no. down there? It's a couple. I know it's a couple miles huh. down this way, I believe. Okay. I, I used to live out in Glendale. Okay, And I cool. used to go out there a lot. So, you know, so you know the area. Yeah. I know the area pretty well. So. Cool. I only got a little lost right 
I don't 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 bother using maps if you're trying to find uh, this place. I went to the other coffee shop. Okay. That's where my van is parked. So, All right. but I thank you. It was good chatting with you. Any, anything uh, you need to promote or pimp or you know what? Um, while you're here, or? the Children of Tendu podcast. You can find it at childrenoftendu.com. Uh, my website is okbjgm.com. Um, the essays are there. There's links to the podcast. Um, and there's also one of the things that I, that I have done over the years is I've collected all of my um, pilot development documents, pitches, outlines, scripts. I think it's hard enough to kind of know how to do television and all that, so I put it all, out, all of that out there. It's downloadable for free. Very cool. So if any of your listeners are people who are interested in getting into television, seeing how it's made, seeing what those documents look like, how people like me put their thoughts together successfully and unsuccessfully, I try to put that out there as a resource. And Children of Tendu is me and Jose Molina talking about how to make it in television. Well, I, will, I don't care if anyone else is interested. I'll check it out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, sir. Go Beans. Okay. Attention, flannel wearers. Lift up your fedoras so your ears will be able to properly absorb this week's vinyl fetish. Well, I can hear the rain coming down on the rooftops. I'm not sure if anyone else can hear the rain coming down on the rooftops. Thanks again to Javier Grigio Marks Watch for the interview. Uh, like I said, he's a good guy, had a lot of interesting things to say, talked about uh, stuff that I think is, is relevant in terms of both the world of Hollywood and society at large. So I hope you enjoyed it. The most recent interview I did uh, prior to Javier was, was, of course, Fred Bronson. Hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed that interview. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. He is a writer for Billboard magazine, has written on other television shows, has done, uh, well, basically was a promotions guy for TV networks for years, and so he has, you know, again, some, some cool tales to tell in terms of the world of writing and in multiple avenues, so, so check that one out. I did get a chance to ask Fred about his vinyl fetish, and coming from someone, again, who works for Billboard, he works for a music magazine, he had some stuff to say about music. Go figure. So let's listen to that now. Well, I mean, my favorite album of all time is Tapestry. And, in fact, when I was in college, I interviewed Carol King for my college paper. That must have been fun. It was great. She was recording an album at the time, and when it came out, it was called Tapestry. I interviewed her before Tapestry, <laughs> because I was such a fan of her songwriting. So I felt, wow, well, who knew, you know, when I did the interview yeah. that she'd really become a huge star. Was it, no, was California's on Tapestry? Am I thinking of the album right? Uh, no, um, well... Uh, uh, it's too late. Oh, so yeah. far away. Smack Water Jack. Will you love me tomorrow? A natural woman. So basically, every hit she's ever had was on that album. Well, it was a big, <laughs> big album. That was a good one. Uh, that's my second favorite album is Sgt. Pepper, and my third is Dusty in Memphis by Dusty Springfield. Wow, that's, that's a, a good choice. That's a good choice. So those are three big albums. But there, I have a lot of albums. Some may be obscure. Um, uh, they all are. That's the that's the whole point of music. I've never had anybody give me the same answer of everybody that I've asked it to. I, one of my all time favorite albums is by a woman named Lucy Lee, and uh, it was written and produced by a man named Roger Clark. Not a Roger no relation. Clark. No, no, <laughs> no, no. And uh, I remember walking into a record. I had there was a I had a favorite little local record store here in the valley called Heavy Rotation. And I walked in one day, and the owner said, I heard an album. It's just 
it's you all over you. And people would say that, and then I listen. No, no, no. <laughs> I was get offended that they think that of you, <laughs> right? But he was right; it was, and I don't. I doubt if anyone could find it today. But there were great songs on there. Uh, she got it was on an independent label. Then she got signed. I, I really boosted her. I brought her over to Billboard and had her perform for our staff. Uh, she did some local gigs. I went to a lot of those. She actually got signed to. Uh, Polygram and then Polygram merged with Universal and that was it she was dropped too many changing hands Yep, the people who were buying the company weren't the people who signed her and they weren't interested because they didn't sign her they want to be able to take all the credit that was was the end of Lucy Lee but the independent album is out there and if anybody can find it I think they'd really enjoy it that's very cool I'll have to do some digging online and see if she I mean you know at this point almost everything can be found online whether they can find it legally online is always the challenge I don't know if this is to be honest I don't know if this is or not well the rain has definitely already subsided so now I'm just a creepy guy sitting in the back of a van in a residential cul-de-sac so I'm gonna stop doing that now and go back to where I actually live. Uh, But thank you, Fred, for uh, your vinyl fetish. Thank you, Javier, for the interview. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, as Craig indicates to you at the end of every podcast, tell a friend. uh, Share a link to this podcast on your social media. And, uh, you know, say thanks to the individuals whose interviews you like the most. Pretty much all of them are available on social media. You can interact with them. And in many cases, they will respond to you directly. I feel fortunate that in the last uh, however many months it's been since we started this, I guess it was August or September when I first got this show up and running, we, uh, and by, by we I mean the royal we, I have had a chance to talk to a lot of cool people, Emmy winners, Grammy winners, uh, non-award winners that are just good people, and I hope to keep that going. Uh, I've got another interview scheduled for tomorrow, should be next week's guest. I don't want to pimp it now, but it, it, it's, it's a good name. It's, a, again, somebody that is known in the industry as being a good guy. So hopefully you will hear that one next Sunday. In the meantime, share this podcast with friends, family, loved ones, pets, anyone you can think of, inanimate objects, uh, people who own Nielsen boxes and do radio ratings for Arbitron. They'd be great people to get to know, wouldn't they? They'd be useful. Uh, uh, Advertising people who are looking to, you know, promote goods and services on podcasts, they would be nice people for you to share this podcast with. Uh, Anyway, that's it from the back of my van at this time. (laughs) I know just how creepy that sounds. We're going to sign off now. This is Kevin. This is the Get Off My Lawn podcast. Until next time, get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn podcast brought to you by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at getoffmylawnpod. Check out our SoundCloud at getoffmylawnpodcast, or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments, or to suggest a guest, 
Our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.